I should have waited over there longer because you guys were doing church just great, right? Isn't that, okay, so fair warning. I'm kind of tired. I got in at two o'clock from Nashville last night with the volleyball team. So the fair warning part is I'm probably going to be really emotional because when I get tired, I get weepy and, and I don't have tissues. So I might be asking for tissues. So, um, but isn't that last song a great anthem for the church? Um, it kind of hits it all. Right? If you think about why the Reformation, why did someone take their life into their own hands? Right? I don't know if you know how much, how much you know of history of Luther and all that, but there was a while where he was kind of hidden in seclusion, right? Because he didn't want to get caught, because if he got caught. But why? why why, why would you do that? Why would you do that? Why do we, like why do you waste your time coming here on a Sunday morning? Why do you waste your time working with children's ministry? Why do you waste your time being involved in a life group? Why do you waste your time with all this? Because the church is a big deal. Right? God's church is a big deal. And I, I think there's, there's a sense in which you can fall into this um, kind of a trap where you're a Christian and so you're serving God. And you, you can, there's so many things, you, good things, right, that you can spend your time on. That it's really easy to get sidetracked and go, yes, I'm serving God. And yet, the very God who you're serving says that the church is a big deal. And so at times we have to kind of evaluate our life and go, okay, is, there, is it possible that I'm doing too much outside the church that's good? And I, I think what we're going to see today, and that's my big idea for the day, is the church is a really big deal. Your local church is a really big deal. Because we know that the Bible talks about the universal church, right? Anybody who is ever a believer in God, in Jesus Christ, in the Old Testament, if they had faith in God's promises, they are part of what we would call God's universal church. But that universal church manifests itself in local bodies, right? And so you, if you ever look in a theology book, right, some of you have probably read Grudem's theology book. Almost any good theology book, when it talks about the church, is going to talk about the universal church and then talk about the local church. And as a, we are, if you're a member here, if you're a part of this church, you are a manifestation of God's universal church here in Midland, Michigan. And God's called you to be a part of this because it's a big deal. It's a big deal. So some of you, maybe you're visiting here, and so I purposely titled this, Your Local Church is a Big Deal. It's a really big deal. Because some of you online, we do have some watchers who watch from all over the country. I don't think I've heard of anybody from across the world. And every once in a while, they'll be like, hey, we really like this. Could, could you do this? Or, you know, what about this? And we always try to go back and say, hey, that's great that you want to listen to stuff that's happening here at Midland Free, but guess what? 
we'd really encourage you to be active in a local church because that's what's important because it's a really big deal. So we're back to the book of Ephesians. So flip there with me if you would. Ephesians chapter three. Um, I don't know about you, but it feels like it's been a long time since we've been there. It's not been that long, but uh, I'd like to kind of review with you what's been going on because we've been working our way through the book um, and with my, you know, having a full-time job and filling in, I can only do so many weeks and then we're off and, and let's be honest, you don't need me every week. There's other really good people that we would rather have you listening to anyway. So, um, but we've been off and again, on again. So let's kind of catch up to what's been going on in the book. The book of Ephesians really is about the church, the body of Christ. It's about God's program in this world, in this age, this present evil age, how he's working. And he's chosen to work with failed, flawed humans in this program, in this institution, whatever you want to call us, this body called the church. So in chapter one, he really kind of sets the the salvific or the salvation basis for the church. The church is made up of believers, of Christians. And though that's who constitutes the church, and what, what he says in chapter one is that this thing called the church is part of God's divine Trinitarian activity in the world. So the father chooses and draws the Holy Spirit and the Son redeems and the Holy Spirit seals and we see God's activity. And in that first chapter, we found that what Paul says about the church is that it is the summing up of all things in the Messiah. Now, there's not too many things in the world that we can say are things that are summed up in this one thing. So in Christ, the church is summed up all. This is the pinnacle of God's working in the world. And we're a local manifestation of that. It's a big deal. At the end of chapter one, he says this. The church is where Christ is currently reigning over is what Christ is currently reigning over as he sits at the right hand of the Father. It is the closest manifestation or the biggest manifestation of God's kingdom at the moment is Christ ruling over his church at the right hand of the Father. And that power that God has that he manifested in the resurrection is poured out through his church. And the Father reigns at the right hand. And so this is where Christ reigns. That's a really big deal. It's a really big deal. In chapter two, he spends a lot of time talking about, at first it seems like he's just, just, not just talking about, but just talking about salvation. But what he's really doing there is he's pointing out that in this thing called the body, there's no room for arrogance because it's made up of a bunch of people who all have been saved by grace. There's no room for arrogance there. There's lots of ways that we can be arrogant in the world. 
But there's no room for it because everything we have is from God's grace. And so therefore, in the church, there's no room for haughtiness or pride or looking down our noses at each other or causes for disunity. And in the second half of chapter 2, he points out that this Jew-Gentile distinction, this racial distinction that was being made in this church, this racial and cultural distinction that was being made in this church has no place in the church because in the gospel and in the new covenant, there is no longer Gentiles as second-class citizens. Rather, Jews and Gentiles together form this one new body called the church, and they are co-equal. So there's no room for looking down our noses at others or treating others differently because of immutable racial characteristics. Because the church is a big deal. Because the church is a really big deal. So that brings us up to chapter 3. I'm going to do something that I'm going to shock some of my closer friends here. I'm going to try to do the whole chapter in one sitting. I think we can do it today. The reason is, I really do think it's tied together. I think generally, at times, as believers, we get to reading our own Bibles, and we can read them sections and paragraphs atomistically, and we fail to put it into its context and really think hard about the context. So I want you to kind of think through the overall structure of chapter 3 with me. So the overall structure of chapter 3 Notice what it starts off with. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then for many of you, there's like a dash mark after that sentence. Because it says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that is given to me. So what you have here is this seeming digression. Paul's a rhetorical genius. So whenever Paul takes a digression... It's not, oh, I have to get this in. It's a very, very specific digression to make a point, and then he's going to come back. And there's, there's something deeply significant about this digression to the rest of what he's saying here. But notice that he picks back up in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So in other words, whatever you see in 2 through 13 is a digression with purpose. So he's going to pick back up in verse 14 with this for this reason but the thing that I really want to point out at first here is that for this reason ties chapter 3 back in with chapters 1 and 2 so whatever he's saying in chapter 3 we can't ignore the connection to chapter 2 and that connection to chapter 1 so here's what he's going to say in in verses 3 1 through 13 he's going to say this The church is even bigger than our own universe. The church is cosmic in its scope and its purpose. And to be honest, I'm kind of blown away by it, but I don't even, I'm not sure I can even understand completely what that means. So let's see if we can work through this together. So he says this, for this reason, in other words, because God created this church, he saved people, he pulls them together into this body called the church because there's not supposed to be arrogance, because there's this unity in the body that transcends all racial barriers. Because of this, oh, wait, let me digress. But it does tie in. 
So here's what he says in verse two, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is a really, really easy passage to get lost in. So let me tell you where I'm taking you, then I'll walk us through it. I would suggest to you that verse 10 is really the pinnacle of what Paul is trying to do in this section. He says this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So now you know what I mean by the church is bigger than our universe. There's something so big about what God's doing through the church that it's not just about us and the world we live in. It's about God showing his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. God is using the church to vindicate his wisdom and vindicate his holiness and vindicate his justice to those who dwell in the heavenly realms, the angelic realms. So what we're a part of isn't just about here and now. It's about God's glory in all of, I don't even know what to say. It's not the creation in all of the heavenly realms. It's bigger than just the created order. And that was kind of a new thing for his readers. So he takes him through and Walks him to this point. So back in verse two. Assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I've written briefly. When you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. This mystery... What is this mystery? Here it is. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, member of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this mystery that Paul was made a steward over was this message that there was going to be a transition from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to this new 
one new body called the church where Jews and Gentiles, we could come together as one new body. Now, commentators have made a big deal out of this term mystery. And there's all sorts of theories out there to what a mystery means. Actually, the term mystery is defined in this passage for us. Go ahead and scan down through there and see if you can find it. I love, I used to teach a class on Bible study, how to do Bible study. And I love, I love expository preaching because it teaches you to do Bible study. So do me a favor, just scan down through there and see if you can define what mystery is from this passage. I'm going to put Jeopardy music on and give you a second. You see verse 5 and verse 6? Verse 5 defines what a mystery is. So when in, in modern, modern America, in the Western world probably, we think of mystery as something like a murder mystery. Who done it? There's clues, and if we put them together, we can find out and get the gotcha moment and arrest somebody or find the treasure by finding the clues, right? It's not quite what mystery means here. Look at verse 5. He says this. It's that which has not been made known to the sons of men in other generations. That which has now been revealed to his holy prophets and apostles. So a mystery in Paul's understanding is new revelation that might have been hinted at before. But is now being made clear. So it's not who done it, But it's clarification from God about a change in his program. And what is this mystery in verse 6? Specifically, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So that's it. The fact that we Gentiles don't have to come in to relationship with God as second-class citizens. We don't have to convert. We don't have to take part in circumcision. None of that. But that was a huge shock to the system of the original readers. That would have been a huge shock to the system of all those who became Christians who were Jewish. Because isn't that the big fight in the early church? If you read through the book of Acts, what's the, the, one of the most pervasive themes in the book of Acts is, what do we do about Gentiles? Do they have to be circumcised to become believers? So he goes on in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So Paul says, look, I'm the least of the people who should be able to do this. What do we know about Paul's life? And why would he say that? Is this a false humility? I think first and foremost, it's an understanding of what grace means, is that we're all completely unworthy and we all need grace. But think about Paul's life before he became a believer. He persecuted Christians, put them to death. 
Think that doesn't haunt him at night if he's not thinking about the fact that God's grace forgave him for that? Yeah. So yeah, I think he's being sincere when he says, I think I'm the least of them. And I, can I be honest? I think every single one of us at some point should go, you know, no, Paul, that's me. Right? Why? Because we all know how corrupt we are inside. And if you don't know that you're corrupt inside, you don't know yourself. But Paul says, I'm the least of these, and God has given me the opportunity to preach to the Gentiles the gospel. Now, let's be honest. Like, I'm not sure I'd want Paul's ministry. Right? I'm not sure you'd want Paul's ministry. But guess what? We each have grace given to us to participate in this thing called the church and have a little role in this amazing cosmic body that is showing God's wisdom to all the ages. So when I'm in children's ministry, I'm not just serving the kids. I'm not just serving Christ. I'm actually magnifying God's manifold wisdom in the world. I don't know how that works, but that is so cool because it may feel like this, but it's a really big deal. It's a really big deal. How cool is that? You know, this preaching through Ephesians has been really a cool experience for me because it's really made me grapple with some things that I'd had kind of on the back burner thinking about and I've had to kind of bring those things forward and, and think about it. And that's one of the, I think, things about when you use your giftedness, God blesses you. It feels like you're being blessed more than other people are being blessed. And one of the things that I've really come to appreciate is the fact that there's more to this world than just this physical reality. Right? There's a whole spiritual realm. And if we could all have some sort of secret pair of glasses that would peel back the, and show us the spiritual reality that there are angels, there are demons, and they are active in the world. And because of the victory of Christ, we don't fear that realm anymore. Verse 10 just has just, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to stop thinking about this one. But it says this, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the church and the gospel is more than just about saving people and creating a, a people for God's own sake. But it also is a testimony to God's greatness and his holiness and his love and his salvation and all of that stuff to the world that's, that we can't see right now. There's a really fascinating passage that kind of started me off thinking about this years ago. And I never really, like I said, I'm still not done thinking about it. But look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. There's a lot of elements to this, but so he says this, this is Peter, the apostle, 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So I think for a long time, I kind of just, without thinking about it, kind of assumed that angels in the demonic world understand God's plan completely. But it's not what this text says. Right? So when God created the angelic realm and some of those angels fell and became demons, we tend to assign omniscience to them. But if I'm reading these texts correctly, they don't understand all of God's plan. Regarding salvation, angels long to understand what the prophets were writing. And by the way, doesn't 1 Corinthians chapters, I think it's chapter 2, it's either 1 or 2, say that if, if the spiritual realm had understood the gospel, they would have never sacrificed and put Jesus to death on the cross. In other words, it was part of Satan's plan to, to, to nail Jesus to the cross, and he thought that was victory. Most of us haven't thought about things like this, right? Doesn't it say that Satan entered Judas as part of the Passion Week, and Judas betrayed him, which led to the crucifixion? So Satan, in his arrogance, thought, he thought that he was winning by crucifying the Christ. You know, if, if, if the super theological types might have had one little problem with that last song that we sang. And that is, all of heaven held its breath. Right? And if those of you who really believe in a sovereign God, it might have been like, oh, wait, heaven didn't help. God knew. Yeah, but you know what? The angelic realm did not understand. I think that song is dead on. Because I don't think the angelic realm understood what was going on. And there was probably a lot of angels who were scratching their heads metaphorically here. Saying, I don't know what you're doing, God. But I'm just going to wait and see what you do to bring about your own glory by this. And I think the satanic realm thought they were winning a victory. Even the Old Testament prophets who wrote. Now it's not that they didn't understand anything that they wrote. They didn't understand the who and the when. The who and the when. That's what this text says. Verse 10, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the glory to follow. Sufferings of the Christ and the glory to follow. And the, the prophets who wrote this were scratching their heads. And as part of the church and as believers, we get to understand what the prophets themselves, the Old Testament prophets themselves, had no idea how it was going to play out. And we get to see how it played out. That's pretty cool too. And I think he's pointing out in this text the privilege of being in the church. Because he says this. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you church people. It's not that 
the Old Testament prophets and Old Testament saints weren't important. But what he's saying is this. There's this great privilege that we have as members of the church of understanding God's plan in a way that Old Testament saints never did and the way the angelic reign never understood. The church is a big deal. The church is a big deal. Good stuff, right? Let's go back to Ephesians. So he basically says this. In 3, 1 through 13. The church is bigger than just the physical realm. The church is cosmic in its scope and purpose. And we get to be a part of that in one little small way. Isn't that great? One of the things that psychologists tell us today is that one thing humans need is to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Right? That's one of the things I really love about being a coach is one of the things that I, that I get to do is help people try to subsume their own personal desires and subsume their own personal wants for the greater good of the whole. And sometimes for some people that means playing a lot. And for others that means not playing as much. But there's nothing like being on a team where everybody is rowing in the same direction. And it's very, very, very rare in, this, in the athletics realm. In the past, I've had players quit their senior year because they say something like this. Well, this year, I came back because it was supposed to be about me. So I'm quitting. Because it wasn't about her. Do we do that in the church sometimes? Can I do that in the church? Could I? Yeah. It's a temptation. But the church is not about me. The church is not about you. It's about God's cosmic program. Man, that's just good stuff. All right, let's, let's keep moving here. So second, second, we're going to find out that God calls believers to spirit-empowered love in the church. So at the beginning of 14, he goes back for this reason. So that's jumping back and saying, look, this is tied to chapters 2, where God says there is no division in the church. Right? And I, I think this is in particular, these next two sections, I think we tend to read these next two paragraphs as though they're pulled out of context and they're these just general statements. Okay? This is talking about a prayer for us, for the original readers there, and for us in extension, that we would have a loving, spirit-empowered unity in this church. What do I mean? Well, let's read. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Why would he say from whom every family on earth is named? Because he's going back to chapter 2, no racial division. Right? Even in the Old Testament, Abraham, was he going to be a blessing just to the nation of Israel? No. 
all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. So he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, this sounds individual. So far it is. So Paul says, look, each one of the original readers, and by extension, each one of us, he prays that we would have the spirit-empowered ability to love. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Ah, there it is. So this prayer isn't just that you would be able to be a loving person. It's that as a group, together, we would understand what it means to love people we disagree with. What it means to love people who have hurt us. What it means to show love to somebody that I accidentally hurt, or maybe even worse, purposely hurt in a very, very bad moment. Paul is not praying for some general thing here. It's a very, very specific thing to a very, very dysfunctional church that needs to learn how to forgive and needs to learn how to love. So then he says, may may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So this love that he wants us to have isn't some kumbaya, all sit in a circle and hum and feel good. It's a very, very practical love that you and I are going to have to walk in in a daily basis. If you are active in a church, you will get hurt. How's that for a sales pitch? If you are active in a church, you will hurt other people. I have unintentionally hurt other people. I've been misunderstood. I've come across the wrong way. You have too. And what generally the human response to that is to pull away. But that's not how God designed this beautiful, ugly mess called the church. God's called us to work through the pain and the suffering that sometimes it takes to to bring people back together. So that we can know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And in doing so, we'll be filled. And that's why he says in verse 20, God is able to accomplish this unity in our local church. God's able to accomplish this. Again, we tend to take this out of context, and I'm not saying it's not true generally. It's a general principle, but we tend to think, I really need need money right now. God can do abundantly beyond what I ask or think. It's kind of like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Help me shoot this free throw. (sighs) Is that what that's talking about? Probably not so much. So what is he saying here in verse 20? God is able to accomplish this in us. He can do abundantly. He is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church. 
uh, in the church. So you say, nope, this is impossible. Can't do it. I'm hurt too bad. I can't. Nope, I'm, I'm out. I'm done. And that's where some of you might be. You might, I, I can come. I, I can come in on a Sunday. I'm going to sneak out and I'm just going to do the church thing. And that's all I can do right now. God's calling you to more. God's calling you to more. But he can accomplish this. And in so doing, what's going to happen? To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. How cool is that? When we work through the ugliness that brings about incredible joy and unity, God gets the glory. Because the church is a big deal. God's church is a big deal. And we get to be a part of this cosmic program. All right, let's bring this home. Application number one. Commit to your local church, God's program. If you're here visiting, we don't want you to commit here. We want you to go home to your church and we want you to jump in. We want you to commit. But if you're here, we want you to engage. We want you to engage. You will never experience God's joy the way you will if you will engage and jump into your local church and commit. What does that look like? If, look, if you're hurting, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you've been hurt really bad and you, you just feel like you can't do it, just take one little step. Go to a small church. Go to a life group. Right? Ask somebody to disciple you. Somebody you trust. And just kind of stick your head out of that turtle shell and do your best to give it. If you're one of those who watches us online and you have... Look, I get we have shut-ins. I get we have issues. This is not a condemnation of those who watch online. But if you're just watching online so you can have a convenient church that you don't have to be a part of, shame on you. Right? Engage. Be a part of this beautiful thing called the church. Yes, it'll be ugly. Yes, it will be painful at times. But God will bring you Great joy to be a part of this cosmic thing. Application number two. Commit to and pray for supernatural church unity. Now I'm going to say something and I'm taking a chance on hurting some people's feelings here. But I think the greatest gift we could give our future lead pastor is forgiving all the hurt and harm that's been done in the past regarding our previous staff, okay? I'm just gonna share something, just being really, family talk here. I wasn't here one month, seven years ago, before I heard the name of the big pastor who helped grow this church and hearing about how bad things happened this and good things happened that and bad things happened this and good things happened that. And guess what? We have a string of pastors that I keep hearing about. And that's because there's still hurt. And I'm not downplaying that hurt, folks. Please hear me. But unless we learn to forgive the stuff that happened in the past, whoever the lead pastor is coming in, they're going to have problems. And, and let me challenge you. Let me challenge you. If you find yourself bringing up the names of previous pastor, 
you, you probably either need to deal with someone in the church that you're struggling with or a group of people or whatever and deal with that and forgive and move forward because we're never going to move forward as a healthy church if we can't forgive and supernaturally learn to love each other despite the pain of the past because it will never get any better because we'll just bring more baggage from the past and it's not going to be good, folks. Last, application 23. You can tell that's a typo. (laughs) That was done at five o'clock this morning, by the way. (laughs) If you're disengaged from your local church, just take one step of engagement. Take one step. God will bless that. Could it be painful? Yes. Might it be hard? Yes. But this is our opportunity to be about God's greatest institution in the world. And we get to be a part of this. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time. We love you and we love your church. Help us to engage. Um, Help us to know what you're calling each one of us. For some, it may be we do too much in this church and we need to take a break so that we can do what we do well. For some of us, it's going to be stop listening to all the podcasts and just do a little more. We pray that you'll help us to do that and know what you call us to do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.